Welcome to the East Career Podcast, brought to you from the East section of career development. I'm Brad Dennis from Vanderbilt University. In this session, we are pleased to have Dr. Samir Fakhari here with us to discuss what every surgeon should know about coding and billing. Dr. Fakhari is the Charles F. Cruz Professor and Chief of General Surgery at the Medical University of South Carolina. He has been a member of EAST since 1994 and is currently on the EAST Board of Directors, serving as the Chair of the Seniors Section. In addition, Dr. Fakhari is the current President of the American Trauma Society. Dr. Fakhari, thank you for taking the time to discuss with us today a topic that I think is often a source of frustration and confusion for many surgeons. Thank you very much for having me, Dr. All right, let's go ahead and jump right in. Is, is billing important? Is this something that uh, the academic surgeon should even worry about? Only if you want to be paid. All right. Uh, what do you think is the most common mistake that surgeons make with billing, and what advice would you give for faculty at the very beginning of their careers? So I, I think overall um, I would advise people to look at the whole process of documentation, coding, and billing as an integral part of your practice. Uh, it's not something that's somebody else's responsibility or somebody else's problem. And despite the vagaries and the complexities of the process, I would strongly uh, recommend, especially if people in the early parts of their career, that they make this uh, learning curve that they're going to encounter uh, an important part of their work, just like they might want to learn a new technique in surgery, uh, how to do a laparoscopic hernia repair, or how to uh, uh, properly manage a patient in the intensive care unit with a new technique. I think doing a high-quality job with documentation and coding and the follow-up processes of billing and collections need to be part of every uh, surgeon's repertoire. Sure. Um, are there any things that Anything that we as surgeons can do to improve our bill, the accuracy of the billing or to kind of reflect the work that we're already doing? Right. So, so I think the, the most common uh, problem uh, that we encounter, I think, is that the payers, the insurance companies or the people who audit, always accuse us of overbilling them, whereas I think what we're doing is we're under-documenting. So I think most surgeons are honest people who don't over-represent what they did in terms of work. Uh, it's just that we don't adequately or properly document the activity that we have just completed in the manner sufficient to support the bill we're sending. So they'll accuse us of fraud and overbilling. We're probably guilty of under-documentation or inadequate documentation, if you will. Mm -hmm. Okay. Are there any resources that you would recommend to help us improve that? Uh, so, yes, there are, and, and um, unfortunately, they're not anything that's available in your medical school curriculum or your residency training program, or they probably should be, at least in the latter. Um, my experience with this uh, was that w when I took over a program and I tried to understand how to improve the process, I discovered there was very little out there in terms of materials or resources. And so, I've, over the years, I've developed my own sort of approach, as have, I think, many uh, many a surgeon, uh, but right now I could tell you that we have in the East Library of uh, webinars uh, a presentation that I put together on the process, and there's, there's probably too much detail to describe it here. Um, there's also many courses offered by groups such as the American College of Surgeons that are very high-quality courses on documentation, coding, and billing, and there's some published uh, resources that I and other people have have produced that I think would be helpful. 
One very important resource I've found over the years is, for the young trauma surgeon is to uh, have one of your uh, more senior partners take the time to describe how they do it and, and learn from them the, the good habits and the efficient ways of accomplishing what is often a rather tedious but necessary process. Finally, I wouldn't underestimate the value of uh, your hospital or your practice's compliance officers and your coders. We, I think many, many of us don't even know who, who our coders and who our billing personnel are. And I think it's, it's no different than working with another group of uh, physicians or nurses but never actually meeting them. I think it would be very valuable to meet the coders you, that are doing your work if, if that's in fact how it's done at your place, and then talking with the people in the back office who do the billing uh, and the compliance folks so that they can help you understand how to best achieve the goals of maximum uh, benefit or maximum reimbursement for the hard work that you're doing. Excellent. I think those are some all great suggestions. Um, let's talk about some coding basics um, for just a minute. What are exactly E&M codes, and what are sort of the important points to remember about them from a billing perspective? Uh, so think I would recommend that you think of the process of documentation, coding, and billing as a translation of what you did as a doctor or a surgeon into numerical descriptors that can be processed by a computer at the insurance company. So in other words, you want to take the operation you did or the non-procedural service that you did and convert it into a code that the system recognizes. And the system recognizes two sorts of activities. There are procedures or operations for which there are codes that are called CPT codes, which stands for um, Current Procedural Terminology. And there are non-procedural codes or evaluation and management codes, so-called E&M codes, that are the more cognitive parts of what we do. The non-procedural portions are apparently called the cognitive. As, uh, must, that must mean that the procedural are non-cognitive. That's right. I kind of always resented that as a surgeon, but that's the current nomenclature. So you take an activity. If it's an operation, you describe it by properly documenting it and then assigning a CPT code to it. Or if it's a not a non-procedural activity, so you see a patient and you provide consultation, you do the proper documentation, and then you provide a numeric descriptor of that activity, and that's called an E&M code. Either way, you're not done because you then need to attach the CPT code or the E&M code. You need to attach it to an ICD-9, soon-to-be ICD-10 code, that describes the diagnoses associated with that activity that best describe the activity. As a result, you will end up converting your work into a numeric descriptor of the work and attaching an ICD-9 code or preferably several codes, up to four, and then submitting those to the insurance company or the payers for payment. Okay. Are there any specific points related to uh, for billing of operative or bedside procedures? So uh, probably the most important thing to learn about uh, procedures is that there is a global package, global surgical package, that is associated with doing a procedure. And what that is is that 
if you're paid for an operation, you're being paid not only for an operation, but for all the normal routine care we would provide on the day of that operation and for the following 90 days. Basically, uh, if a patient has an operation such as, say, an appendectomy, and then they are in the hospital for a day and you come to visit them and you just do routine care, and then they're discharged, come back to your clinic, and you take out their stitches or you do a wound check, all of those activities are part of the normal care of a patient with, who's had an, an appendectomy. And they are all, therefore, part of what's called the global surgical package. So during that time, you can only bill for the operation. You cannot bill for the other services you're providing because you've already been paid as part of the operative fee. So this came actually out of the surgical tradition of providing pre-op and post-op care. And it's actually an idea that was, that was uh, introduced by physicians, by surgeons specifically. Um, and then the payers thought it was a really good idea that they would only have to pay you one time. And that's where that came from. Now, remember, for procedures under the global surgical package, you can charge for additional services if you're doing something that's not normally associated with that operation. So say, for example, a patient with appendicitis has a PE the next day, and you come to care for them and have to take them to the ICU. You may have to intubate them, provide curl care, resuscitate them, etc. You can bill for those additional services. But you have to remember that if you send in a simply uh, uh, routine bill, when it's processed in the computer, as it almost always is, that bill will, for additional services for care of the PE will be rejected because it's in the global surgical package. The only way to keep it from being rejected is to attach a modifier to the ENM code. And what a modifier is, is a two-digit number that follows the ENM code. So if the ENM code is, for example, 99291, which is the curl care code, as it happens, you would then want to say uh, dot 24, which Im implies what 24 says is that I'm providing care different and distinct from that normally associated with this operation that was done uh, in the day or two before. Now, technically, what should happen when you submit a charge for critical care or post-operative care that is not routinely associated with the operation, it should not be rejected. It should be paid because it's different from the operation. Remember, you should assign a diagnosis to that new uh, ENM code you're sending in that is different from the diagnosis you used for the operation. So in this case, if you use acute appendicitis, when you sent in the CPT code for the appendicitis, you should assign a different code, in this case pulmonary embolism, or respiratory failure, or hypoxemia, when you send in the additional code 99291 with a 24 modifier. Excellent. We kind of read my mind. I was, I was heading right into the question about modifiers. So are there any other things uh, relating to modifiers that the acute care surgeon should know? Absolutely. And, and you know, this brings up um, an important point about the entire um, coding system that we have. The coding system was designed for elective surgery, elective medicine, elective practice. It was not designed for emergency procedures, and it certainly was not designed for trauma care. And the reason that that is an important concept to remember is because the acute care surgeon will frequently do things that an elective surgeon would rarely do. For example, we often, as acute care surgeons, will see a patient 
make a diagnosis, and operate on them all in the same day. Again, because of the global surgical package, if I see a patient in the emergency department, for example, with acute appendicitis, I'm entitled to put in a either consultation code or a uh, initial uh, care code as I admit them to the hospital. And then when I take them to surgery, I'm entitled to submit a CPT code for the operation. Remember, however, that the global surgical package says that if the payer sees the CPT code and another E&M code on the same day, they can reject that outright uh, and not pay you for the E&M code. That is because they're normally used to getting an E&M code from an elective surgeon a few days before they do the operation. So a patient comes to the elective surgeon's office, gets diagnosed with a hernia. That surgeon can then submit a code for that clinic visit. A few days later, they take them to the OR, do the hernia operation, submit the CPT code, and get paid for it. There's no conflict with the global surgical package. If that elective surgeon was to do an H&P on the morning of the surgery and submit it, it would make sense to reject that code because he's already done an H&P when the patient was in clinic. So when an acute care surgeon sends in an H&P on the same day as an operation, the payer is going to think that that's what's uh, happening uh, uh, as if it were an elective surgeon. They think you've already sent an H&P and you're just sending another one. So they'll reject you. So to avoid that, you should use a modifier that says, that this activity that I'm doing, this E&M code that I just put in, I'm putting it in to establish the diagnosis on the same day of surgery, and therefore you should not reject it within the global surgical package. So that modifier is important, and I would recommend that all, uh, the, all surgeons should look at what's called Appendix A in the CPT book, because Appendix A has all the important modifiers in it, and the modifier you would use to indicate that your H&P done on the same day of the surgery should be paid is modifier 57, called the decision for surgery modifier. So when the payer gets an H&P uh, uh, charge from you that has a 57 modifier on the same day as the operation that you did, they will not reject it. But if they didn't have that modifier to tell them that you were doing it because that was the day you made the decision for surgery, they would think you saw the patient previously, have already submitted a charge, and now you're double billing them. That's that's excellent information. I didn't know that. Um, how about um, so many of us work uh, closely with residents? Uh, what does the supervising attending surgeon need to do in order to bill for procedures performed by residents or um, or other uh, non-billing providers? So uh, we should probably speak specifically about residents because they're much different than medical students, for example, and and to some degree different from that advanced care providers. Uh, advanced care practitioners, excuse me. So as far as residents are concerned, the, the regulation for um, an operation done in the operating room is that the attending surgeon who sends in the bill must be present for the critical portions of the procedure, that they must not be involved in another procedure at the same time, that they must be immediately available for the rest of the procedure, the non-critical portion, uh, must be available for that, um, and that they are... Um, uh, obviously qualified and the right, you know, the right specialty and the right person and all of that. So if you meet all those conditions, you're fine. What that means to me, though, is that if I'm going to do a, an operation with a resident, um, in general, I would need to be there for the important parts of the operation, which in my judgment would be the following, and I would decide what they were. So the rules don't specify what the critical portion of an operation is, which leaves a lot of room for 
criticism. Much like all the other rules for coding and billing, by the way. And therefore, I would recommend to most people that if you're the attending working with a resident, I would suggest that you be there for as much of the operation as is humanly possible. Um, I think there's advantages uh, not just in the coding and billing sphere. There's advantages in the education of the resident, advantages of quality of care for the patient. And in this day and age, um, your being there for the entire procedure will probably mean that it will go more quickly, there will be less waste, um, and that there will be a, a, a more responsible stewardship of resources. Um, the educational paradigm is such that we can't always be there all the time and expect residents to acquire the necessary level of skill and decision-making. But I would say keep that in mind. Balance out the educational mission with the efficiency mission. But as far as coding and billing is concerned, I would make sure you're there for what's called the critical portion of the procedure. You're immediately available for the rest of the operation, and you're not doing something that's not normally within your sphere of expertise because that will always raise a red flag for an audit. Okay. Thank you. Um, let's talk about critical care for just a moment. Uh, you know, I think all of us can probably recall a sick patient whose bedside we sat at all night long, either resuscitating or titrating pressors or manipulating the vent in an attempt to kind of stabilize them. How do we uh, reflect that sweat equity that we put into patients like that? And can we be compensated for that, or is that just part of the standard care of an ICU patient? Well, so I think it's, a, it's an important question, and um, there's a common misconception out there um, among coders as well as some physicians that if you're the operating surgeon, you can't render uh, – critical care and then bill for it because it's in the global surgical package. And the truth is that uh, it's uh, uh, not at all correct. Um, if, if you are the operating surgeon, you can and should, in my opinion, provide critical care to your patient. And you, if you document it properly and use modifiers, you will get paid. Uh, in the vast majority of cases, um, there should be no problem in getting paid, actually. Uh, the la there's language from the CMS about that very situation, and it is especially pertinent to trauma, where critical care rendered by a trauma surgeon to an injured patient is clearly delineated as separate from operative care and other interventions that a trauma patient may need. So trauma is actually a, a, an easier one because there's very specific language about doing critical care for trauma patients. Overall, though, the approach that I would suggest we look at is that giving critical care um, is an important function, and if you document it properly, you can bill for it using 99291 as the, C as the e and code. Um, the details of that are best um, found in a couple of, of uh, publications and directives from CNF, CNS. Excuse me. Um, if if uh, your listeners would like to go to the CMS webpage, which is cms.gov, and go to the section called Medicare Learning Network, or MLN. You can just search for it within it. In the Medicare Learning Network, which is a series of publications that describe how to do various things, you can then search for 99291. There's actually a publication about critical care that explains a lot of the details and the confusing parts of rendering critical care. Simply stated, to provide critical care, you have to meet three important requirements. One, you have to have a situation where the patient is critically ill, and they 
in the publication I mentioned, they describe that as a condition that is associated with a high risk of the, uh, patient deterioration, organ failure, um, and so that in your documentation, you need to address that and describe why this patient is critically ill. They have respiratory failure, they have renal failure, they're in shock, they have coma. So that's the first one, is you must meet the critical care criterion, if you will. The second criterion that has to be met to bill for critical care and expect to be reimbursed is that you must deliver critical care to that patient. So if a patient is simply critically ill, that doesn't mean that uh, you are immediately entitled to bill critical care. You have to explain what is it that you did that qualifies as critical care. And to do that, your best bet is to say in your note that I managed this patient's ventilator. I provided fluid resuscitation for shock. I would be very explicit in how you describe that in the note. And most of my critical care notes start with something like, this patient remains critically ill. He has uh, multiple organ failure, including respiratory failure requiring mechanical ventilation. We continue to provide aggressive fluid resuscitation and pressors as needed to maintain blood pressure. And the patient remains at high risk for complications and mortality. It's remarkable that notes for critical care are actually some of the shortest notes if they're properly constructed. But they must, one, describe why this patient is critically ill, and two, describe what it is that you did that was a critical care intervention. And the third requirement is that you must deliver at least 30 consecutive minutes initially of this critical care to qualify, and that that must be documented in the note. And in my notes, I write, critical care time, 37 minutes without procedures. That's important because if you are putting in a central line, for example, you're going to be billing for the central line. So you can't count that as critical care time. And you must state when you write your critical care time is 37 minutes or 54 minutes or whatever it is, you should state that that does not include procedures. But you do have to meet that threshold of 30 consecutive minutes initially for you to be able to bill the critical care code 99291. And remember, if you're the operating surgeon for that patient and you did that operation a day or two before, you need to add the modifier that says that this is not the standard care provided for a patient with appendicitis or not the standard care for a patient who had a bowel resection. And that modifier, by the way, is 24. Okay. Um, how can surgeons ensure that they are optimally billing? What kind of uh, interaction do you have with the people at your institution who do your coding and billing, and do you get feedback from them? Well, we, I think we have a, a reasonably good system here that I, that I found uh, to be uh, effective. Whenever a new surgeon joins us, we actually audit every single one of their charges for the first 90 days, which means that one of our compliance people looks at every charge that that surgeon submits, goes back to the root documentation, reads the note, and determines whether that charge is supported by the note. Um, that's one way that you can be fairly sure that your surgeons are providing adequate documentation for the charge they're submitting, for the code they're submitting. It also allows us to identify opportunities for improvement and help mentor those young surgeons as they're beginning uh, in areas of uh, potential need um, and explaining to them concepts that may not be immediately apparent. So that's one way to do it. I think there are several other important ways. I think performing random audits in your practice is very important. So 
at least once or twice a year, I ask my coders and my compliance folks to pull a particular code. Uh, critical care code would be one example, um, admission codes, discharge codes, and say, pull all of these in our practice and verify whether they're appropriately used and whether they're the, the one that best represents what we did or is there a better one. And then we look at that and we review it as a group and we determine whether we're performing adequately. This is also important because by doing internal audits and demonstrating that you are compliant with the regulations, you also can defend yourself against a, an audit by a CMS or the insurance companies because you are demonstrating that you're making an effort to make sure that your doctors are doing what's right. Finally, I also think you may want to, from time to time, have uh, somebody come in from an external uh, source, whether a consultancy or um, somebody who's particularly good at doing it that you met sometime at some meeting. The reason for that is uh, relying only on internal sources may sometimes uh, result in uh, either uh, too conservative an interpretation of the rules or too liberal an interpretation. And bringing in a third party who knows nothing about how your practice functions may actually allow you to learn about potentially more efficient ways of doing it and more rumors of ways of doing it. So I think all of these are important um, to ensure that you're doing a good job. Yeah, absolutely. I think they're, those are great suggestions. Um, so finally, taking the 30,000-foot view, Dr. Fockery, what is the main message or piece of advice that you think every surgeon should know about billing and coding? Well, I think that every surgeon, as I said at the beginning, every surgeon should look at uh, the processes of documentation, coding, and billing as an integral part of their practice. They, sh they should put enough time into that to make sure that they're doing a good job, that they're doing a fair job, that's neither uh, overcharging patients or undercharging patients, and then also that they're being appropriately rewarded for their hard work, because I think most people in this field work so hard that it would be a shame not to be appropriately uh, uh, paid. Um, I also think the other part of all of this is to understand that increasingly our practices are reliant on income from the care of patients. There's not a lot of a margin, and that if you're not careful and not um, conscientious about making sure that you're being paid fairly and appropriately and optimally, that in the end you'll damage your practice and you'll not uh, be able to do some of the things that you'd like to do, um, such as expand your practice, add partners or add practitioners, which will improve the quality of care and satisfaction of all the people in your practice. So I think it's a, it's a key part of a successful practice. It's a key part of a quality practice. And it's very, very important uh, in terms of avoiding uh, accusations of fraud and standing up to audits. Well, thank you, Dr. Fakhri. I think this has been very informative. Um, so on behalf of the East Career Development section, I would like to thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. I'm Brad Dennis, and I hope you enjoyed the program. When you find a moment of time, please visit the East website at www.east.org for more East Career podcasts and other valuable information. Dr. Fakhri, this is Jamie Coleman. That was great. You know, one quick question for you to also tie in your other career cast about the business side of trauma, you know, wanting to maintain or keep a certain bottom line, and at the same time, developing within your group different areas of expertise. And you mentioned research, ICU, administration, education. 
But as we're all aware that these aren't all necessarily compensated the same. So how do you kind of keep the peace within your group, and do you believe in pooling RVUs for the group? Because all of these roles are imperative to making your group successful. So that's uh, you're, you're touching on one of the really important sort of leadership functions is, is how does a leader or a group of leaders um, uh, appropriately incentivize people and importantly appropriately reward them because most of our colleagues are high achievers. And I, I learned a long time ago that high achievers um, like to be rewarded when they're doing a very good job, and they really hate to see low achievers um, languishing and not being um, – penalized and in, in a, uh, a non-mean uh, sort of way I'm talking here. So I think it's very important for um, people in, in, in my practice to know that they're being fairly compensated and that they're being uh, appropriately compensated if they're doing more work. And so the answer to your question about sharing pooling versus having everybody eat what they kill, so to speak, I think the hybrid answer is the most effective one. And the way I've done it in my practice is that I've uh, established um, uh, sort of uh, quartiles where there's the assistant professors are in a range of salary, the associates are in a range, the, the professors are in a range, and then um, I'm in a range all by myself, of course. But uh, we draw that from the AAMC uh, strata, um, and you could do it from other uh, uh, consultancies like the MGMA that provide different scales depending on your experience or um, rank or whatnot. But in addition to that, uh, so each individual knows that in their own rank, they have the opportunity to move up from the low end of the range to the high end of the range. When they get promoted, they're going to jump up to the next range. But I think it's also important that everybody realizes that a portion of their salary is earned on an equal basis with other people. So, for example, if you're working really hard and doing a lot of cases, uh, that work is no less valuable than uh, the work of somebody else who may be at a different rank, but is also working hard doing a lot of cases. And so what we do is we, there's a portion of our salary uh, in the range of 20%, for example, you could use that, that is a, an incentive-driven portion. And that includes RVU productivity, it includes academic productivity, and it also includes a portion for other functions that are not otherwise reimbursed. So if somebody is a medical director, say, of the ICU, and the hospital gives us money for that person, that activity is reimbursed, and that doesn't enter into that calculation because you, you don't want to get paid twice for the same thing. However, if somebody is doing work, for instance, teaching medical students and doing a very good job and getting uh, uh, you know, uh, noticed for that, but there's not a salary line for that, then what we try to do is we try to give uh, credit by a point system that we use. So there's points for teaching, there's points for lecturing, there's points for publishing, there's points for grants, there's points for doing any of number of things that are otherwise not reimbursed. Now, the important point in all of this, that at the end of the day that you have to look at if you're taking the leadership uh, view, is you can't turn your practice into a matter of everything I do has to be paid for or everything I do is paid for in a certain way, uh, because that, otherwise it deteriorates and is no better than everybody in com being in competition against each other. I think the challenge of the leader is to make sure the group is functioning as a team, working well together, but also that each of them feels that they're fairly compensated and that if they're doing more work, they get more pay 
And that's, I think, where the hybrid system works well in that you get security and you get to feel like you're part of the team and you have shared goals because if we don't perform as a group and meet the expectations of the department or the hospital, then we won't have the, the money to pay the base salaries. But at the same time, people know that if they do additional work or they overperform in academics or in administration or in education, then they will have additional reward. And I think it works pretty well, but it's not perfect. And, and there, I don't know if there is a perfect system, so I would encourage everyone to consider what their special circumstances are and develop a system that's appropriate for those circumstances. Well, this was great. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciated it. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thanks, Dr. Fuckery.